Each American president throughout history has shaped us as a nation and as a people. To know a bit more of that legacy, Will Anderson, associate professor of broadcasting at Central Michigan University, wrote our next script while he was an artist-in-residence at the Herbert Hoover National Historic Site in West Branch, Iowa. This portion of tonight's performance is funded by Central Michigan University. We're very pleased to present the son of West Branch, America's great humanitarian, an oral memoir. Our happy land of freedom and opportunity. Their futures lying uncast. Each man born to shape and mold his own destiny. Fate yet unwritten, the metal of the man weaves a fabric of tiny moments into the tapestry of a life well spent or squandered. Great is forged from the fire of choices and tempered in the resolve of betterment for the brotherhood of mankind brings us to the threshold of a modest cabin on the Iowa prairie. The year is 1876. Act One, The Sick Little Boy. Ma, Bert looks so sick. Why is he coughing so much? Will he be getting better soon? No, Tad. Looks like the croup still has its hold on him. Poor Bert. Wish we could make him better. The kettle calls. If we give him a bottle of something warm, it, it might help loosen up that cough. It's not fair that Bert's so sick. He's only two. That's just like the croup. When a boy gets older like you, Tad, there isn't much croup left to get. But Bert's going to be all right, isn't he, Ma? I've sent for your Uncle John. He's the best doctor around these parts. Other than that, we have to put our faith in God's hands now. My poor baby. Now, Tad, I need you to watch Bert while I go out to the root cellar to get some beets for supper. All right, Ma. There, there, Bert. Have a bit more of this tea. That'll make you feel better, won't it? What is it, Bert? What's wrong? Ma, Ma, come quick. Something's wrong with Bert. What is it, Tad? Uh, it's Bert, Ma. I, I was giving him a drink of tea, and then he just started coughing, and he just kind of slumped over. Hand him to me, Tad, and listen carefully. Are you listening carefully, Tad? Yes, Ma. Good. I want you to run as fast as you can over to the blacksmith shop and get Father. Tell him we need him right away. Do you understand? Yes, Ma. Oh, Heavenly Father, if it be thy will to take my son, let it be so. But I pray thee, if it is not, bring him back to me. What happened, Hilda? Oh, Jesse. I brought Pa, Ma. He was right outside. Hand me the little general. John is on his way with his doctor's bag, but it's too late. He's not breathing, Jesse. No, he is not. I am afraid he is with the Lord now. Oh, poor little Herbert. 
What will we do, Jesse? There is nothing more that can be done. He has slipped off the mortal coil of this world and moved on to the next. Oh, Jesse, he was so very young. All that is left is but to cover him to give him his rest. I came as soon as I could. Where is the boy? Oh, John, I fear you are too late. We have pulled the sheet over the little general. No, as a doctor, I must see for myself. How long has he been gone? It happened just a minute ago, Uncle John. He is gone for certain. Have some faith, boy. All may not be lost. I may perhaps pull him back from the Great Divide. Now uncover him. Breathe, boy. Breathe! Good Lord, man. Stop shaking him. Have you no respect for the dead? Hulda, tell your brother to leave his poor body in peace. Unhand me, Jesse. Hulda, tell your husband to unhand me. Please, it is the boy's Jesse. only chance. Oh, John is a doctor. We must place our trust in him and our faith in the Lord. <gasps> Merciful heavens, the boy is breathing. He is back with us. Praise God. Brother, you have saved him. The little general here is... Resilient and determined. I just helped. You did it, Uncle John. You saved my brother. You hear that? You're going to be okay, Herbert. God's blessing is on the Hoover House this day. Act Two Westward Adventures. later, in 1885, the world had changed for young Herbert Hoover. Now but 11 years old, we find him at the end of a journey across the country to a new home. I can't believe we're almost there. Won't it be nice to get back on Grandpa's ranch, Toby? It's your will, sissy. Getting to accompany father on the start of his business trip was nice, but Des Moines was far too crowded for me. Well, it does have over 20,000 people there. Why, that's 20,000 sets of encyclopedias that Father will be able to sell. We'll be rich. Say, what are you looking at? That boy over there. He's been writing by himself ever since we got on the train. That's over three whole days. <whistles> Golly, I wonder where his parents are. That poor little boy. He must be so scared. And brave. What do you mean, brave? I could ride the train by myself if Mother let me. I'm going to go talk to him. You better not, Sissy Davidson. You know what Mother said about talking to strangers. Never you mind that, Toby. I'm just going to say hello. I'm going to go tell Mother. Oh, poo to you. I'm going to go talk to him. Hello there. Huh? My name's Sissy. What's yours? Oh, hello, Sissy. I'm uh, Herbert Hoover, but most people call me Bert. Where are your mother and father, Bert? I haven't seen them this whole trip. My father died when I was six. Oh. And my mother got sick and died last year. That's so awful. You're all alone? We had to split up our family. I am going out west to stay with my Uncle John for a while. So... You're making this long trip all by yourself? Well, I know a family from West Branch that's on the train, but they're in another car. My goodness. 
Do you have enough food? Huh, I'm fine. M my uh, my aunt sent me with a box of boiled eggs and sandwiches. Oh. Plus, I still have the two dimes that she gave me for emergencies. And I have these. Are those arrowheads? Uh-huh. Where in the world did you get them? I collected lots of them when I was staying with my Uncle Laban Miles down in Oklahoma Indian country. The Indians taught me where all the best hunting and, and fishing spots were. One day, I caught a fish that was this big. Gosh, that's huge. <laughs> Those arrowheads here are pretty. May I hold one? Oh, sure you can, sissy. This one is made from flint. And here's my favorite. It's carved out of obsidian. Obsidian? What's that? It comes from volcanoes. Volcanoes? There are volcanoes down in Oklahoma? Well, there were a lot of them back a long time ago, but they're not active anymore. Golly, Bart. You sure know a lot about rocks and minerals. Well, being down in Indian country really got me interested in them. Wow. There she is, Mother. Oh, now, Toby. Talking to that boy, just like I said. Stop trying to get your sister in trouble. He looks like a very nice boy. <laughs> Hello, young man. Are you on your way home from visiting out east? No, no, ma'am. No, I, I'm from West Branch, Iowa. I, I'm going to stay with my Uncle John in Newburgh. Newburgh? That is our next stop. Oh. Newburgh, next stop. Newburgh, Oregon. Newburgh, next stop. Newburgh, Oregon. I can see the station coming from around the bend. You had better get your things together, young man. We're almost there. I appreciate your kindness and concern, ma'am. I have all of my things beside me in this satchel. All of your worldly belongings in that one bag? Yes, ma'am. But with my health and a full stomach, I have need for nothing else. All right, young man. You had better get ready and get along. Good luck to you. Thank you, ma'am. Goodbye, Bert. It was very nice to meet you. Good Goodbye. Goodbye. You never let me ride the train alone. Oh, hush, Toby. What a brave little man. May the Lord bless and keep him. Act Three, The College Years. Bless and keep the little general. Time has changed our wayward orphan into a tall and ruggedly handsome 20-year-old man. Rich in character, if not worldly things, he has enrolled in the first class at Stanford University and is making his way in a world that has previously been closed to him. Election Day, Election Day. Come on, you Stanford students, make your voice heard in the Stanford University student body elections. Every vote is an important vote. Election Day, Election Day. Afternoon, Martha. Oh, hello, Edith. Have you voted in the student body elections yet? No, I just can't decide. Last night at the mixer, Wendell Tolliver tried to get me to say I would vote for him and the rest of his Sigma Alpha friends. But I just don't know. Those boys and their Greek fraternities. If you ask me, 
I think those rowdy mixers are the only things those Sigma Alferts care about. Why, I heard that one last month went on until almost ten o'clock at night. <gasps> Who knows how late they would have kept carrying on if the proper authorities had not been notified. Maybe we should vote for those non-fraternity people that won last year. What were they called? The Barbarian Party? They couldn't have come up with a more fitting name, if you ask me. Barbarians, indeed. They need to show respect for those who are worthy to lead. Well, that Herbert Hoover did do a good job as class treasurer. Remember how much debt there was before he got into office. I know. How many times did he deny our social gathering reimbursement requests? That money could have been a great help to us. Oh, he was as fair with us as he was with anyone. He stated his belief that it wasn't the student government's role to finance our fund. He's just plain stingy, if you ask me. Well, Herbert Hoover might be stingy, but his wise money management brought the junior class budget back in balance for all of us. Well... Yes, mm -hmm. but still, we need our leaders to be from a certain <laughs> social class. Not only aren't Herbert and his friends even in a fraternity, but they make a big joke out of it by calling themselves the barbarians. Barbarians, indeed. Did I hear you ladies talking about our esteemed class treasurer, Herbert Hoover? Oh, hello, Charles. You ought to know that it isn't polite to eavesdrop. Ah, well then, I suppose neither of you would be interested in hearing a little tidbit that I overheard about Herbert at the baseball field. <gasps> oh, Charles, you are so awful. How can you tease us like that? Please tell us. Yes, Charles, please. Well, all right, if you insist. I'm sure you know about the important visitor who was on campus yesterday. Of course. Everybody knows that former President Benjamin Harrison was here to deliver another of his constitutional law lectures. But what does that have to do with Herbert? I know he wasn't able to go because he was managing the baseball team at the time. Well, after President Harrison was done with his lecture, he went down to the baseball field to take in the game. And he walked right through the gate without paying. Certainly no one would expect a former president of the United States to have to spend 25 cents to buy a ticket to watch a Stanford baseball game. M most people, maybe, but not Herbert. As team manager, he's responsible for all the gate receipts. No, you don't mean... That's right. He marched right up to Mr. Harrison. Uh, he had the nerve... To approach the former president of the United States and ask him to buy a baseball ticket? I don't believe it. What happened? You must tell us, Charles, what happened? Well, I wouldn't have believed it either if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. But right there, and then President Harrison handed Herbert a whole dollar and said he'd not only pay for his own ticket, but that he'd take three more to boot. My goodness. Can you imagine how confident... Herbert had to be. Confident nothing? That sounds like pure cheek to me. The gall of that man. Well, all I know is that anyone who believes that much in having everyone pull their fair weight has my vote. He certainly sounds like the man for me. Why, Edith Stafford, bite your tongue. Mooning over a man like Herbert Hoover. You have no shame. Anyway... I hear that another woman has caught his eye of late. Surely you don't mean that 
awful tomboy, Lou Henry. Shh, shh. I wouldn't let her hear you say that. People say she can run, rope, and ride as well as any man around. <laughs> She'd make quick work of you if she heard you talking like that about her. Hardly. What could Herbert see in that old tomboy anyway? Well, the way I heard it, he's been smitten with her ever since they met at the geology soiree at Professor Johnson's house. Mm, and my housemate Tyler Mason said that they were lab partners last spring. Oh, enough already! The good ones are always taken. But that's not going to stop me from voting for him today. He's the best man for Stanford. <laughs> Act 4. Engineering Opportunity Now a man of letters, we follow the little general as he opens the door to a wider world. Our scene is a large, opulently decorated office. A well-dressed, powerful-looking man hunches over his elegant desk in keen concentration. Let's see. Red thread over the hook. Black thread under... Yes. I'd ask not to be disturbed. My train leaves at three. Uh, Mr. Bewick, sir, I am sorry to interrupt the preparations for your fishing trip, but a Mr. Um, Hoover is here to see you about the overseas position. Blast it. A man gets so little time for relaxation. Very well. Send him in. sooner I can be rid of him, the sooner I can get back to tying this fly. <coughs> Yes, my good man. Make it short. A fishing junkman is waiting for me. Good afternoon, Mr. Bewick. I come about the engineering position within your uh, overseas gold mining operations. <laughs> oh, no. Certainly not. This, this will never do. Pardon me, sir? I come recommended by my former supervisor, Mr. Louis Janin. And might I inquire as to your age, young man? Twenty-two, sir. Uh, uh, indeed, I thought as much. It appears as though my old friend Louis has put me up for some sort of practical joke. Pardon me, sir? I'm afraid I, I do not understand. Of course you don't, my lad, as it would appear that you're but a pawn in Louis's elaborate prank. Evidently, he took issue with my desire for an experienced gold mining engineer, quote, approximately 35 years of age with approximately 75 years of experience. <laughs> uh, tell me, son, how long have you had that awkward mustache? Uh, I, uh, I admit it is a recent acquisition, sir, but I am well suited for the position. Please, take a look at this. Mr. Jannon sends this letter of introduction as to my credentials. <clears throat> I see, um, Mr. Hoover. I full well understand that you come highly recommended, but I ask him to send a man, not a boy. If you will excuse me, I need to get back to preparing for my trip. V very well, sir. I certainly hope your mine management shows better foresight than your tackle larder. I beg your pardon, my good man. Clarify yourself. Well, I see from the trophies mounted on your wall your fondness for coho salmon. Indeed. They're the royal monarch of the waters. I've commissioned the best guide in the Northwest solely for this trip. I thought as much. 
But might I ask, why you seem to be tying Cedar River larvae flies? You have a keen eye, young man. I've tied over a dozen of them myself under his advice, and at no small investment of time, I might add. That is truly a shame, Mr. Bewick, as their molting was over four months ago. No fish worth his salt would give that fly a second glance. Are you sure that he instructed you to tie them? Indeed, young man. I have his instructions right here. May I see them? Oh, arriving in April. Well, it appears that he is under the impression that you were to be there earlier in the year. Well, that is when I had originally planned the trip, but then business delayed until now. Uh Certainly it shouldn't make that much of a difference, should it? Well, having been fishing salmon all across the country since I was three, I'd use a rolled muddler minnow. But being such a young pup, what would I know? Well, I should be going now. Good luck on your trip. Oh, wait, wait. Wait a minute, young man. Are you certain about this uh, muddler fly you mentioned? As certain as I am that I could run your operations overseas. Oh, well. It has been a pleasure, sir. Oh, now, now, perhaps I was a bit hasty in dismissing your credentials, young man. My train is not scheduled to leave until three. Tell me more about your experiences with my dear friend, Louis. And perhaps along the way, we can see how long it would take you to type a few of these flies before I have to leave. Yes, sir. Act Five, The Loyal Leader. Nineteen fifteen. Years of careful mind stewardship in the Orient and prudent investments have transformed the little general into a rich and powerful leader. Always mindful of the lessons learned from his humble beginnings, Herbert Hoover turns to serving the needs of his fellow man. And with American involvement in the Great War yet two years in the future, there could be no better time for the great humanitarian to walk onto the global stage. In war-torn Belgium, battle disrupts the flow of food to innocence. Unwilling to accept a fate of slow and cruel starvation for Belgium's millions, Hoover leaps to act, banding together relief from America. Yet, to an end, the great humanitarian never wavers from keeping the interests of his fellow countrymen serving under him in this dangerous endeavor, first and foremost in his mind. Our scene begins on a warm fall afternoon in a small northern Minnesota town. An elderly woman sits quietly on her porch awaiting news from the outside world. Nana, Nana, the post is here. There's a letter from Jules. From Jules? Praise the Lord. Oh, bring it to me, child. Here you go, Nana. What does it say? My dearest mother, I regret the long time it has been since I last wrote to you. Mercifully, under the Lord's watchful eye, I have come to no harm here in the towns and fields of Belgium. Despite Despite the many many well-armed German forces we encounter on a daily basis, the eyes of the Belgian people, while still showing signs of hunger, have moved beyond the panicked and desperate horror we encountered when we arrived in April to distribute food to the needy. 
While the people owe their thanks to Mr. Hoover, no one is more beholden to this great man than I, for it is my thought that he saved my very life. Worry not, dear mother, for now I am safe from harm, the same possible harm that kept me so long in writing to you. Yeah? Who is it? Herr Hoover is here to see you, mein Colonel. Ah, undoubtedly about that Americano spy we are holding. Send him in. Jawohl, mein Colonel. This way, Herr Hoover. Ah, Herr Hoover. What a pleasure it is we meet again. Please, have a seat. No, thank you. What is the reason for this unexpected meeting? You know damn well why I am here, Schmidt. I have been informed that you have been holding one of my men for the past three days. I want him released this instant. Herr Hoover, we agreed to allow you and your men behind the battle lines to distribute food to the Belgian people, not to provide an avenue of information for our British enemies. We have reason to believe that the man we are holding... He's a spy. A spy? Jules Olsen is nothing of the sort. Every man in my operation is here for one and only one reason. To provide relief supplies for the Belgian people. Each has signed an oath of neutrality that they have sworn to uphold. I stake my reputation as a gentleman on this. I demand he be released this instant. I am not so certain that this can be done, Herr Hoover. My men found your man drawing sketches of our defenses in a very sensitive military area far away from the food distribution corridor. Here, take a look at these. But, uh, but these are simple drawings of buildings. How can you be so sure about them? As a soldier in charge of my men's lives, I cannot afford to assume he is not a spy. But how can you be certain? Colonel Schmidt, let us be reasonable about this. All our men share the burden of being so young and so very far from their homes. Do you remember those days? Yeah, Herr Hoover. I remember. And you can also remember, on the back of youth comes mistakes. War and espionage are old man's games. Please, at least bring him to me so that I may question him myself. Mm. If he proves to be a spy, I will watch my hands of him. Ooh. If not, I ask you to release him to me. But Herr Hoover, upon what is this to be based? Solely upon your word? Colonel, my word is my bond. In nothing do I put higher value. Very well, Herr Hoover. Very well. <laughs> Müller, bringen Sie den Gefangenen herein. Jawohl, mein Colonel. The prisoner has requested mein Colonel. Colonel, as an American citizen, I must protest the type of treatment I've received over the it past... It seems to me, Olsen, that you would be wise to place more focus on listening than on making demands. Mr. Hoover, praise the Lord... But what are you doing here? I would think the more pressing question, Olsen, is what are you doing here? The colonel here seems to think that you are a spy. So, Olsen, what is it? Are you a spy? Well, are you? Are you? Hundreds of thousands of dollars have gone into this relief operation. I will not have anyone jeopardizing the work we are doing. So out with that man. Are you a spy or not? No, sir. No, I swear to you, I'm not a spy. 
Well, then what were you doing away from the rest of your company, man? I was looking at the buildings and got lost, sir. Lost? How could this be? Back home, I'm... I'm, I'm studying to be an architect, and I stopped to sketch out a design, and when I looked, I realized everyone had moved on without me. Why would you bother drawing buildings in a war zone? Whatever could you have been thinking? You have work you should have been doing! As I said, sir, I'm studying to be an architect, and the buildings are so breathtaking. I've never seen any structure in Minnesota more than a hundred years old, and those are cabins. Some of these magnificent structures date back to the Middle Ages. I've never seen such graceful use of angles and lines. If that were the case, why did you not tell the Colonel's men when they captured you? I tried, sir, but they were questioning me in German. I was so scared, I didn't think they would believe me. I believe you. We have heard enough, Schmidt. This man is no spy. You may let him go. Herr Hoover, I must protest. I cannot let this man go solely upon your... You will let him go! The man is no spy! He is an American who is under my command. We have signed a pledge of neutrality. Our only goal is to feed the hungry and prevent them from starving. Without your cooperation, we will pull up stakes and bring our operation to a close. Do you want the deaths of so many to be on your hands... Merely over a few meager sketches by a boy far from home? But, or perhaps you have a means for feeding them? Well... I am a very busy man, Colonel. I'm afraid I haven't the luxury to wait all day for your answer. All right. All right. You in, Herr Hoover. I release him to you. To have such a protector. You know you are a very lucky young man, do you not? A very lucky man indeed. Today we prepare to move out. This cruel war has assured that there will be many more hungry in need of feeding. But I, thanks to the brave intercession of Mr. Hoover, am a free man. Mama, I owe my life to Mr. Herbert Hoover. He is indeed the great humanitarian. Lord Bless Mr. Herbert Hoover. What a great man. Act Six, The Great Mississippi Flood. Dateline Cairo, Illinois, New Year's Day, 1927. 
Floodwaters from the rain-engorged Mississippi washed over the walls of this southern Illinois town. Mississippi River Commission engineers assured Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover that the levees in place would hold. In a brief statement given on his way to join President Coolidge for New Year's supper, Secretary Hoover promised to keep a watchful eye on the issue. Where the men, they come calling, say we need you sweat and blood. Yes, the men don't come calling, say we need some sweat and blood. Take a shovel to the shoreline and pray we can hold back the blood. Back the next morning, half a farmer washed away. Yes, I come back in the morning, half the farm be washed away. Mister, who will give a shelter? Little girls got safe place to stay. Dateline, Greenville, Mississippi. In an epic battle of man against nature, thousands toil around the clock to fortify levees to hold back the raging floodwaters. Coordinating the efforts of the Red Cross and eight other relief agencies, Secretary of Commerce Hoover has assembled an armada of over 600 relief ships and has organized vast tent cities for the tens of thousands of refugees. Recalling dramatic shades of his work saving our war-torn European brothers from starvation a decade ago, Secretary Hoover stopped along the route on his way to the scene of the disaster to personally solicit aid from leaders in over 90 communities. On each stop, his message was the same. A couple of thousand refugees are coming. They've got to have accommodations. Huts, water mains, sewers, streets, dining halls, meals, doctors, everything. And you haven't got months to do it. You haven't got weeks. You've got hours. Where muddy water keep rolling, spitting dirt and silk and sand. Yes, that muddy water keep on rolling, even dirt and silk and sand. Water's going back down low. Think back below the levee. Well, I dreamed I saw Noah, but I waved that boat on by. Yes, I dreamed I saw Noah, but I waved that old boat right on by. No need to stop for me, friend. So stay by my side. Oh, well, well. Act 7. Return to West Branch. All right, the train's coming. Let's try it one more time. Okay, okay, that 
That's enough, boys. Save some breath for when he gets here. Mayor, Mayor, can I get a few words from you for the public? Ah, yes. Mr. Cooper from the Register. I'm glad to see you still feel our little town is important to your readers in Des Moines. Well, the eyes of the world are on West Branch today. What do you have scheduled for the candidate? When the next president of the United States comes back to his hometown, you don't set the schedule, he does. Oh, come now, Mayor. The election is not until November. What makes you think he is going to win? Listen here. Herbert Hoover is the best man for the job, bar none. And you can quote me on that. When Herbert Hoover sets his mind to a problem, Things get solved. I don't need to remind you about that flooding in last year, do I? Uh, no, sir, but it's still... Or the work he did getting planes in the air when he was Secretary of Commerce. Not to mention the work he did getting radio up and running across the country. Yes, but yes. But, of course, you probably won't want to write about that. Radio being your competition and all in the news game. <laughs> what about his statement that any man worth his salt should make his first million before he was 30? How's that going to play with the common working man? Just looking around, West Branch seems to be running a bit light on millionaires. Excuse me, sir, but in this year of our Lord 1928, we have never been more blessed or prosperous. Look at the facts. We have more home ownership than ever before in our nation's history. A common man is investing in the stock market alongside the old money. There's room and opportunity for everyone. And Herbert Hoover's the man to protect that. Well, yes, but for the working man, who Hoover... nothing. Tell me, how many of the candidates have been bargaining directly with U.S. Steel to bring the 12-hour day down to a reasonable 10 hours? Well, given his connections in the government, exactly. I would Exactly. Herbert Hoover has more experience than all the other candidates put together. Tell me, how many Belgians did they save during the Great War? Five? Twenty? Thousands? Millions? Well, not directly, of course, but... The man's life's work is beyond reproach. Tell me, how many books, including texts that have become standards in the field, have the other candidates written? Well, Now, if you'll excuse me, I must get ready for Iowa's favorite son and, Lord willing... The next president of the United States. Start the man, boys! Here he comes! Friends, we've come to the end of a story that has traced our hero from his humble beginnings to the great man he is today. Call him what you will, the master of emergencies, the great humanitarian, or liberty's protector. Herbert Hoover is the best man for the presidency. Remember, when you are in the privacy of the voting booth on November 6th, vote wisely. Vote Hoover. The future of our great nation is in your hands.